Hello, my name is Alexis Fatistas, and on behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this IRF podcast with David Murren, founder of Global Forecaster. The Independent Research Forum was established to promote the best of independent research providers. Our research providers span a comprehensive range, including stock pickers, forensic analysts, macroeconomists, politics and policy analysis, boutique consultancies, corporate investigators, and much more. Today, I'm privileged to interview David Murren of Global Forecaster. David is a financial market and geopolitical forecaster, advisor, author, and global future trends speaker for whom the term polymath is entirely accurate. His 30-year career has been primarily focused on finding deep-seated patterns in history and using these to create a lens through which to analyze and understand future global events in both today's turbulent geopolitical dynamics and financial markets. To achieve this, he has developed a unique model for human systems and their cyclical behavior that is applicable to empires, nations, military organizations, and companies. He has spent time in some very interesting places, and perhaps this is a good place to start. David, why don't you recount your observations on human behavior gleaned observing the tribe's people in Papua New Guinea and relate them to your analysis of financial markets? Thanks, Alexis. That's a lovely introduction. Um, so, unbeknownst to me, uh, when I um, joined an oil exploration company and found myself in the Sepik Basin in Papua New Guinea, back in the mid-80s, I was really going to come away with a fundamental, fundamentally different perspective on humanity, and that was uh, our labour force were Papua New Guinean tribes. Uh, They spoke their own languages. They were relatively small. There were 700 different languages amongst 3 million people at that stage in Papua New Guinea, half the world's languages, distinct tribes, distinct cultures, and I watched my workforce of 70 well well heavily armed um, cannibals um, behave in a way on the first day of work was such I've never forgotten it. It was the concept of one man's anger, um, indignation had been asked to work, um, spreading like a pebble and the ripples in a pond and watching all of the others emulate that energy to the point where I didn't think I'd make my first day of work out of it alive. Um, and then watching it reach a peak um, surviving the peak, and then watching it discharge like the energy in a capacitor with time. What fascinated me about fascinated me about the Papua New Guineans is they completely forgot why they're angry with you only you know, seven hours later, and you'll be friends again. Whereas in Western cultures, we harbour those grudges for generations sometimes. Um, I didn't really think I'd seen anything more than our past, the concept that humanity basically had evolved and we were modern men and they were more like our primitive ancestors, tribalistic and collective in the way they shared emotions. After a number of years, I came back and through an interesting path, I found myself on the trading floor at JP Morgan. And as a good scientist, because I'm a trained physicist and geophysicist, I remember thinking I know nothing about anything about this environment, so I need to observe and, and see who does well and who doesn't and what works. Very quickly, I noticed a couple of things, uh, and I know the economists amongst you will blanch, but it was very clear that economists and knowledge really were really non-predictive. Some of the guys out of the East End who trade off the FXS were really good, actually, at predicting what will come next. And most of all, I saw intelligent people reduced to emotional um, dynamics of a collective herd, just like the one I'd seen in Papua New Guinea. 
people get incredibly emotional about losing losing or making money in a way that I never never really saw when I'd risked my life, when others around me had risked my life or their lives. And that fascinated me because I suddenly realized that human beings were collective. We have a collective behavioral pattern. And some people are more immune to that collective behavioral pattern, more individualistic, stand outside. The majority of people in completely independent of background and education are within the herd. And most institutional organizations promote herd behavior because if an individual, they don't tolerate it. Uh, and I quickly really understood why I was able to, using this model, see things that other people didn't because I was quite individualistic in the way I was hardwired to think. And it is a hardwiring issue. Um, and ultimately, that set me on the course um, to set up my first hedge fund and uh, run my own macro hedge fund for over 25 years very successfully. And what I'm really doing now is sharing that knowledge on a much broader front with other groups um, because of a number of reasons. Um, one of the core reasons is unless we understand how we collectively behave and in finance, we get the chance to see those repetitive patterns time and time again. How can we ever escape them and how can humanity really ever escape the paradigm, which I think is self-limiting at the moment, of unconscious collective behavioral patterns? And one of the theories you'll see on my um, website is all about conflict, promotion of conflict. And we are in a particular phase, which I think is akin to 1909 and 1936. So we're walking our way into a terribly difficult situation. Um, at the same time, what I seek to do is practically predict markets based on a number of models, which we can talk about in a minute. As, as well as your uh, understanding of collective behavioral patterns, another aspect of your work that has particular appeal um, to me is the historical narrative underpinning the theory behind your predictions. Would you expand on what you call the five phase life cycles of empires? Absolutely. Look, um, the origins of, of this theory um, came about after 9-11. Um, and my personal interest since I was very young was, was human conflict, wars, how they're fought, why they start, how the technology operates, who wins, why people win. It's really been a life study. Um, and at that time, you know, markets and economics seemed a very different space. And after 9-11, I realized there was a massive confluence. The world wasn't and couldn't have been how people thought the Western world hadn't been dominant in such a way as it would last for a thousand years and capitalism and democracy were the perfect model. Something was really remiss um, in terms of the American immune system that facilitated a strike so effectively on multiple targets. And that really got me thinking, you know, what happens if we are subject to a giant tidal wave type change in our environment that I couldn't see through market price models because it's of a Fourier magnitude or wave magnitude bigger than the evidence you the puddle you're working in. And all my models are price-based, but obviously price-based data doesn't really go back beyond 100 years, if so, effectively. And so I needed something else to really pick up and understand you know, how those big cycles could affect the very moment when you're an investor. And I felt as if we were about to be subject to one of those cycles. So I took my basic models of how price operates, how systems rise and fall, and I distilled it into essentially a process where a system goes through five clear stages. And let's sort of talk about an empire because it's the largest agglomeration of human organization. So the first stage is what I call regionalization. It's driven by demographic expansion. 
and systems with expansion need to change and adapt. And they reach a point um, near the end of that process where essentially the leadership is left-brained and iterative and a few people have an awful lot. And underneath it, the pyramid is expanded and a lot of people have a lot less. And the system seeks to expand because populations have grown, but it seeks a different form of leadership. And at that stage, what really happens is that there's a civil war. And the civil war is between the left-brained iterative thought process and the right-brained creative lateral process. And what's key about that is essentially um, it's called a civil war. And initially, the odds seem very slim with respect to what happens at the beginning. And by the end of it, the right brain system has dominated and overturned the left brain system and spreads power through the pyramid below it. And the whole system rushes out into the next stage. And that model is exactly the model I used to predict every single stage of Brexit from the time the referendum was announced by Cameron to its outcome, to how the right-brained you know, groups within the Brexit parties would basically win what seemed like an impossible struggle. Yet it was actually a very predictable outcome. It was inevitable. So that's the first stage and the end of it. The next stage is something that's almost exponential. If you go back to sort of the time of 0103, when I started to think about this, I started to make predictions that America was the last of the Western Christian empires after the sequence that started with Portugal, Spain, the Dutch, then the French, and then, of course, Britain, the largest of them all, the German challenges, and then finally America, the last of the Western Christian empires, was in decline. And that's really what we've seen at 9-11, the beginning of that declining process, the mark point. And essentially, as, as America declined, there would be the rise of another system that would fill the vacuum. And that system is a superation empire, as I call it, starting with Japan. And from China and its rise from the Boxer Revolution from 1902, we've seen 120 years of accelerated expansion. And I predicted that China would expand at a rate no one could ever imagine because it's a non-linear expansion. It's exponential. And exponential growth curves are terrible for more linear iterative people to think about. And in decline in the Western system, we are dominated by a left-brain iterative process, something we've seen an awful lot of in our government's responses to the coronavirus. Uh, lock it down, you know, keep your thumbs on it and it'll work. Well, that's not the science of it. The science is very different, but it's a thought process of decline. And so China is the only system in the world right now fully in expansion in this massive challenge where it's headlong in a charge for hegemonic power before the date of the end of this decade, when India then becomes a significant player and reduces its chances. There are no systems in what's called maturity, because after an expansion of an empire to its limits, a next phase is sort of a steady state maturity where it's expanded to the maximum it can control and it becomes highly integrative and tolerant. You know, people don't realize that every empire you study are more tolerant in maturity because they have the material needs they need and they're no longer struggling for expansion and they integrate on the inside. Until at the peak of maturity, there's some kind of fundamental switch in power which is the, the kicking out an effect of the right brain creative energy for the more iterative energy, because after all, you know, you're in control of the world, there are very few shocks and iteration actually works as a form of governance and iterative processes tend to be more body politic orientated than the more maverick right brainers that build the system. So there's a shift which takes place and with it, another form of conflict one way or the other. And the system gradually starts to roll over in maturity to the point where it comes to overextension. 
An overextension is really the triggering point that we saw prior to 9-11 for America. It's a system which is actually not affording itself. Its debt burdens are increasing. Its real growth has contracted. Yet it looks so big, of course, it can never fail to the issue of thought people process that leads it. And then there's a moment like 9-11 where some fundamental process reveals the weakness. And that's the beginning of decline. And America's been in decline for 20 years from Bush Jr. to the rollover of Obama, where without being racist in any way, with underclasses demographically expand and get control of the system. They never expand it. They always focus on internal social um, inequality rather than maintaining the borders of the empire. And the system collapses rapidly. And then the swing back to Trump, which is highly predictable, which is make me great grin. Of course, he couldn't. And you know, interesting enough, systems in decline are very self-centered and they promote self rather than collective service. So that's a time when narcissists rise to the fore like Trump. And he did. And he hasn't made America great. He's made it more vulnerable. Uh, and then there's a rollback into socialism, which we're about to get next with Biden. And it's almost inevitable. This poll, this whole election is about the greatest wealth distribution policies will win because there are an awful lot of poor Americans who demand help from their state. And Biden's package allows for that. So that's really the, the essence of, of the five stages and five phases of empire represented in the world around us. And every country in the world fits into one of those phases. And with it, I've been able to predict outcomes, social trends, types of leadership in a way that conventional thinking really doesn't allow. David, yes, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that uh, one needs a firm understanding of history to have any idea of where we might be headed. So I find this this uh, all very fascinating. Uh, you are here on the US and China. I just wondered, um, closer to home, where is Europe and the UK within the five-phase life cycle of empires? Well, that's very interesting because when I wrote my book, Breaking the Code of History, in all the, you know, from 2003 onwards, when I really started to write it, to when it was finally published in 2009, I assumed Britain was part of the decline of the West. Uh, we lost our empire, really, by about 1970. We were divested of all empire legacy, and we were really lost and rudderless. And at that stage, we turned to continentalism and the EU, um, away from the history of a global maritime economy. Uh, it was an experiment for us born out of desperation in some ways. And although we knew that the common market, as we sought access, really had a phrase at the back, which was political amalgamation, which we never wanted, we went into that process. What happened was then Thatcher came along and she kick-started the wealth creation dynamics of the country in the most incredible way over her three terms in office. And every um, government that followed really fell into the category of wealth creation or wealth neutral policies. We never really swung back to wealth distribution. And so the system has been rising and reorganizing faster than we ever realized. And one of my key signals um, about what I call national energy, which is obviously increasing when you expand, is looking at sporting prowess. And the Olympic gold medals are a really good indicator. Forget the intelligence agency. If you want to know where your threats are coming from, just watch the rise of medal countries and you'll see systems rising with national energy. And so when Britain turned up with a, with a, a, a third uh, in the, the middle table, I was thinking that was really interesting. But when they followed up with a second, that was a clear signal that the organizational energy and the systematic energy and the national energy of, of Britain was one of expansion. And in fact, Britain had restarted itself and was the only country in the West starting a new cycle from 70 onwards. And Brexit was in fact the end of our regionalization phase. 
Uh, and I've been using that model since I recognized it, you know, back in 1415. Yeah, it's been very, very accurate in terms of what the system, as in Britain, will need and how it will elect, for example, Boris and what Brexit represents. So the one thing that's interesting is, as a collective, Britain represents something on the rise, which is why it left a falling system in the form of um, what's been going on in the EU. Because the EU is on the other side of the equation, ready to collapse. Thank you, David. Um, one of your most alarming predictions from your work is the, um, the new Cold War that you see developing between China and the US. Could you explain why you believe that it has come to this and what you predict is likely to happen within the next five to ten years? Well, um, I've been following this ever since I really understood that America was in decline, as in the fifth stage of my five-stage cycle and the last of the um, Western empires and that the super Asian empire had started with Japan and we've been at war already with Japan in that cycle and that China has been rising for 120 years and we've been fighting China since its civil war we did in the Korean war and we did in Vietnam in essence so the clashes between our western and eastern cultures have been you know, happening over the past century they started in fact with the war between Japan and Russia in 1904 um, and so this was a clash of civilizations and cultures that was almost inevitable. And the interesting thing is the rate at which um, a military hegemonic challenge is regulated is not by the size and speed that the younger system rises, but actually by the vacuum rate of the, of the older system as it declines, which is America. Um, and the next key thing is that one of my other theories, you can see all of these on the website, by the way, there's a list of theories, you can read through them. And there's even a theory of human entropy, which explains why we create these empire social structures and actually what drives us to go to war, even though we all say it's terrible, is a, a mechanism of, dare I say it, wiping out or the forest fire that takes the old system out and allows new systems with greater anti-entropy to rise. But going back to the conflict issues that we face, essentially China would do one thing and it has done one thing which I've talked about for years. It pretended to look like the West. It pretended it wanted to join the structures of the West. It encouraged the West to invest in it. And it then built a manufacturing base and coincidentally stole the West IP in a quantum jump that would have taken decades otherwise. And only now, um, with Trump, but also post the virus, is China making the next phase of its move, which is it's now recognized as an overt threat to America. And therefore, this concept of ongoing integration is just not possible. And the virus has accelerated that process, and we've moved to a bifurcation of the world, a new iron curtain coming down with China on one side and the West and America on the other side. So anyone caught in China, their fingers are coming off because the Chinese don't want you there. And more importantly, they'll eject you as America will increasingly eject Chinese influence and Britain and Europe in, in our um, systems because we are now in a phase of strategic competition that has reached the point where it is a military challenge. And there are two pieces which, you know, you talked about history and the lessons. The lessons of how Germany expanded, and my next book, which is coming out, is called The Road to Wars. And it really outlines a systematic algorithmic process whereby a rising hegemony challenges the old system. So in Germany's case, a key moment was March 1936, because until that moment, the Versailles Treaty had contained Germany as, you know, predominantly driven by France. 
And that meant there was the Rhineland area demilitarized. And it was there so that the Germans couldn't get to the industrial heartland. But more importantly, it was there so France could invade Germany easily through that zone and support its allies of Italy, Czechoslovakia and Poland. So it ensured the good behavior of Germany. When the Germans moved into the Rhinelands with a very limited force that could have easily have been countered, the French took the decision not to because they were having a gold crisis. They were distracted. And that distraction meant that they let the Germans keep it. And of course, what did the Germans do? They fortified their border with France in what's called the Seafried Line. And that then stopped the French from entering Germany easily without a real fight. And France wasn't up for that, which meant that the alliance structure with Italy, Czechoslovakia and Poland collapsed. And it wasn't long before both Czechoslovakia and Italy were both allies or in the hands of Germany. The system just collapsed in front of us. And we don't really look at how the war unfolded with the steps before that. What's key to that process is there's a very similar paradigm right now, and that is the first island chain in the concept of the Chinese homeland defense. And it runs you know, along the first island chain. And the first island chain is a bit like the Seafried Line. And now that the, the Chinese have denied access to the US Navy through their missiles, which one in five or one in 50 could kill a carrier, where it's a ballistic missile with a hypersonic glider weapon, maybe of a higher ratio, the US Navy can't really operate in that space. And in the same way, America faces a collapse of its alliance structure in places like Taiwan, Japan, South Korea. We're seeing a perfect replay of history. And we're seeing commensurately with the confidence she has that he can defend that boundary, greater aggression within it, Hong Kong being an example. And there's a second example, which is equally as concerning. And that is at the same stage that they gained the Rhinelands, they initiated or Hitler initiated what's called the four year plan. It was the complete militarization of the German economy to go to war within four years or be bankrupt. And that's exactly what they did. And part of that process was they secured their resource chain so they couldn't be blockaded by the Royal Navy again, as they were at the end of the First World War, forcing them to the table in the Versailles Treaty. And at the same time, they built a system which they thought could then take Europe, literally. Uh, and once you build a system that's internally fueled by an arms race, it's either committed to act in an aggressive way and move towards war or go bankrupt. It's inevitable. And the swap over in China right now is very similar. China is now shifting to an internally fueled consumer society. There's a gap between its production levels and what the Chinese can buy, but that gap's being narrowing rapidly year by year. But now that gap will be filled by an accelerated arms race, which is already in place, especially in the naval domain. If you've been following what's been going on in the South China Sea and, and the growth of, of Chinese forces and the alliances to contain it, which remind me very much of post pre-World War I alliances and pre-World War II alliances designed to contain this expanding threat. So there are two perfect examples of history repeating itself in front of us, and yet very few appreciating how similar the position is now as it was in the run-up in 1909, as it was in 1936 into those conflicts. David, such interesting topics. I would like to thank you for this fascinating insight into the work provided by Global Forecaster. And I wish we had longer, but these podcasts are of limited duration. I should point out to listeners that your top-down geopolitical analysis informs the pricing models used to recommend trades over the short, medium, and longer term. Perhaps we can cover this in a, another podcast. The Independent Research Forum would be pleased to provide details and put you in touch with David. You can contact me at Alexis at 
independentresearchforum.com. Again, thank you so much, David, for taking the time to speak to us today.